there, Julie. How's it going? Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm doing okay. Can't complain. Although, let's see, it's April 19th and it's snowing as I look out the window. So, yeah. Nebraska weather for you. Nebraska weather for you. And for you, dear listeners, you are listening to What the Heck is Resilience Anywhere? WHRA. My name is Julie, and I'm a master's student here at University of Nebraska-Lincoln in soil microbial ecology. My name's Connor, Connor Barnes. I'm a PhD student here at the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I study law and ecology. And today, Connor, what are we discussing? Today, we're delving into the deep mysteries of hysteresis, a very fancy and complex sounding word for a very fundamental concept, I think, to alternative stable states. Yeah, I would say that this is, this definitely goes hand in hand with alternative stable states. So you, dear listener, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, or given that topic a brief read, maybe start there. Absolutely. We'll get into a little bit just to recap what alternative stable states are. But for an in-depth explanation, definitely check out either that episode of the podcast or uh, the Associated Council for Resilience Education online module or just general information about alternative stable states that you can find in the scientific literature. So our roadmap for this episode, Connor is going to start us off with that concept introduction that he just discussed. I'm going to cover a bit of a foundational paper, an earlier paper that describes hysteresis and some of its application. Connor is going to chat about a modern paper, and then we'll head into our favorite section, Resilience in the News, and see where we saw resilience or alternative stable states or hysteresis or panarchy or whatever in the news this week. Sounds good to me. Well, to start off with, let's, let's do a brief recap of just what alternative states are. Alternative stable states theory refers to the idea that any any given system that you can think of has multiple different states that it can exist it can exist in. So to take an ecological example, Nebraska, where we're at here, could be a grassland, it could be a savanna, it could be a woodland, it could be a desert. There's not a final state that the system is going to inevitably move toward or wind up in. There's instead, depending on different conditions and inputs different potential states that the system can exist in. So these system inputs and feedback loops will create a tendency for a system to maintain its present state, but changes to those inputs and those feedbacks could shift the calculus and cause that system to turn back into a a different state. Thinking back, listeners may recall the ball and cup model from alternative stable states. In this situation, The the ball and cup demonstrate how disturbances can create pathways. So the ball can be pushed up a hill, cross the top, the peak of the hill, which is the threshold, and then fall into a new state. So the new state is represented by the cup. Now, hysteresis is the idea that once that ball has fallen into a new state, it is much more difficult to go in the reverse direction. There's new inputs. There's new feedback loops that have been put into place because the system has fallen into that that new state. And as a result, there's different subsystems in place that are effectively making a return to the previous state much more energy intensive. Think of this uh, with the ball and cup model as the ball falling into a new cup, resulting in a, a changed landscape, a changed picture. The hill that you need to push the ball up and get back over to that original system state that you want has suddenly become much steeper. 
it's a much more challenging hill to push the ball up. And Allen and Angler 2016 described this as the path out is not the same as the path in. What this means is that the process for getting back to the previous state is different and the energy cost is greater. Mm -hmm. So a simple reversal back to the previous state is not actually possible. As an example of this, we can look to woody plant invasion in the Great Plains, a topic we've touched before, possibly because I have some <laughs> bias in that area. Yeah, same. Having, <laughs> having done some research, right? <laughs> so we can use smaller intensity prescribed fires in the Great Plains to maintain grasslands. And historically, this is how grasslands have worked. This is how grasslands have been maintained for almost 10,000 years in the Great Plains of North America. Fire suppression in the past hmm, hundred years or so has allowed tree species such as eastern red cedar to gain a foothold in what was previously a grass-dominated landscape. For grasslands with a lot of woody plants, returning to that grass-dominated state will require more coordination, more frequent fires than maintenance would require, and this would need to be supplemented with potentially mechanical and chemical removal for, for certain types of tree species. And as a result, the process and the energy cost for getting out of this woody plant dominated state is different than it was in order to get into a woody state in the first place. Yeah, hysteresis is such a uh, important concept because of how much how it can be used to defend like maintenance and proactive action in these kind of ecosystems. Right. We now know, you know, in this case of woody invasion in the Great Plains, that sort of consistent, frequent prescribed burns or other kinds of fires are necessary for the health of the ecosystem, right? And now we know sort of with this research that it's not just important, you know, some things you, maybe you don't, you know, you don't take care of something in your house, blah, 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 but you can go back and fix it later when it falls into disrepair pretty easily. It's not the case here. History is basically the idea of that you have to keep up your you know, maintenance uh, otherwise, you have to put in a whole lot of time, effort, and money later on. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Julie. It's very much a, a question of energy cost, and it's yeah. way easier to maintain the present system where you have all of your feedback loops that you want in place yeah. than it is to go and change a system back to a prior state. Super interesting. Well, thank you for that introduction, Connor. For the foundational paper... I looked at a paper called Thresholds and Multiple Stable States in Coral Reef Community Dynamics from 1992 uh, by Dr. Nancy Knowlton. So this paper is not by any means the first paper to talk about hysteresis, either in ecology or in any other field for that matter. Uh, hysteresis seems to have been around for a long time. I have not been able to nail down sort of the first use of the word or the first paper. It has a long history in physics, chemistry, engineering, biology, economics. You come upon the ideas of magnetic hysteresis, elastic hysteresis, um, all kinds of stuff like that. And it's even been around in ecology for a long time. All I was able to nail down in terms of like early usage is that it comes from a Greek word. That's where the etymology. Uh, and that's really all I got. So if any of you listeners know like the first original origin of this in ecology would love to hear but this paper i think was interesting because it was almost an early synthesis of the ideas of alternative stable states and hysteresis in coral reef ecosystems in 1992 so looking back you know 20 or 30 years what had they learned at that point in time about these concepts 
Um, and it was also interesting because this paper never even used the word hysteresis, even though the word had been around for so long. Yet the first sentence is the most interesting and sort of intuitive definition of hysteresis that I had actually ever read. And I think this is a really nice way to sort of start the paper. And it, we mentioned this, I've mentioned this before, but older papers got some very pretty writing. So the first line here is, the straw that broke the camel's back describes discontinuous response to continuous change, which is the defining characteristics of thresholds. Moreover, it betrays the kind of threshold of particular interest to ecologists, for if you remove the last straw, the camel does not regain its original state. If you've put that last, you know, straw on a camel's back and the camel has literally broken its back, you cannot just remove that straw, that last heavy thing you put for it to carry, and it will not magically repair its spine in this weird analogy, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's a very, definitely a very evocative... uh... Yes statement there yeah i I like it yeah it's an attention grabbing first yeah for sure and it definitely that's i mean that's a that you know this isn't a complex adaptive a camel is not a complex adaptive system unless you count all the bacteria in there or something but it is a uh the path back is definitely not the path in in terms of breaking the camel's back. So they say analogous analogous <laughs> phenomena have been described in biological communities. For example, gradual increases in nutrient input to lakes can lead to sudden collapse of microphyte community and domination by phytoplankton. This is sort of that eutrophication idea that we mentioned in alternative stable states. Um, you know, you add a bunch of nutrients into a lake through runoff from fertilizer or whatever, just taking out the equivalent amount that you added will not make the lake go back to a clear state if it's been pushed into a cloudy state by those nutrients. Um, sure. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Basically says that sudden and difficult to reverse change is typical of transition between alternative stable states. So yeah, this paper is right on board with what we've been talking about. And you know, back in 1992, they had a lot of the same ideas that we had in terms of alternative stable states and hysteresis. And so Dr. Knowlton writing this paper She says that the most recent debate in alternative stable states at this point in time in 1992 has been focused on like whether the proposed examples of alternative stable states. So in this case, like that too many nutrients in a lake makes it cloudy and then it's hard to get it not cloudy and clear and cloudy are alternative stable states. The recent debate has been whether or not that phenomenon is even legitimate. Like, is that an example of alternative stable states? You know, and some other ones that were being mentioned at the time. Um, Dr. Knowlton says, that's great. That's a cool debate. That should be talked about. But in this paper, I want to discuss what makes the presence or absence, or I guess the presence of multiple stable states or alternative stable states more or less likely. She wants to know like what ecological characteristics make it likely that an ecosystem would have more than one alternative stable state. So that was kind of a cool... Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of the discussion here. So this paper, she proposes examples of alternative stable states for reef, coral reef ecosystems in particular, illustrates them using really simple graphs, you know, sort of like ball and cup model kind of things. So if you are interested in this paper, go get a look at it. There's just some very beautiful, simple illustrations of these concepts. And to sort of walk through them and to see like what theoretical assumptions in ecology and resilience theory increase the likelihood of multiple stable states, um, sort of drawing on papers that people have been writing for the 20 or 30 years prior to this. 
So, Julie, these simple diagrams that you mentioned, mm -hmm. do they include specifically the ball and cup model? Like, is that an actual, do they describe it as ball and cup model, for example, or do they label it somewhat differently? Since this isn't specifically about hysteresis. Or right. So, like that. yeah, not specifically the ball and cup. It's more making like simple graphs out of empirical examples, like, like how many fish and like sea urchins there are and like the combination of those numbers and how many, like does a lot of fish make the urchin population crash and sort of these like simplified empirical examples. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, specific to the coral reef sort of ecosystem. So kind of a cool thing. And they also, they focus, they focus really heavily on like classic eco ecological theory, a lot of predation, a lot of, you know, competition ideas here and try to integrate that with the alternative stable state idea. So the example, so she has sort of four categories of proposed examples of multiple stable states. Single species interactions, competition, predation, and then competition and predation combined. <laughs> and again, really trying to combine classical eco ecological concepts with, uh, you know, alternative stable states and hysteresis. So the single species interaction discusses um, like one species in particular that used to be the most abundant and important generalized grazer on many Caribbean reefs. And then in 1983, 1984, it suffered this like catastrophic mortality throughout all of its range um, with reductions in some areas exceeding two orders of magnitude, she says. So since then, in most places, recovery has not occurred, um, although some limited recruitment exists. And so with some of these areas that had very drastic reductions and others that were mostly safe after this, you know, die off for whatever reason. She claims that the, the result is two stable states, areas with high density of the species and areas with zero or very low density. So this is sort of trying to apply the idea of alternative stable states to the populations of single species, uh, which is something that I wouldn't say is done too much in the modern literature, but again, trying to really apply these classic ecology ideas. Yeah. Uh, she says that populations just above the threshold, like that sort of, I guess, the tipping point pretty much, will increase to carrying capacity, while those that are sort of below that will go into the other cup, which is either extinction or very low abundance, maybe maintained by migration or something. Very and, cool. Yeah, an interesting idea. So yeah, to make it explicit, she says extinction and survival basically are the two alternative stable states in this single species example. Yeah. Very binary on and off approach. Very binary on and off approach, single species, her second example of sort of synthesizing recent literature and how it might, you know, does or does not work with the alternative stable state framework is competition. So she, her, this, the theory that people have been discussing was basically predicting multiple stable states via competition as a case of like unstable coexistence, basically. Competitive multiple stable states require that the alternative dominant species have broadly similar ecological requirements and are sort of at war with one another to see who's going to make it out and who's going to survive in this area. So if you have a lot of, you know, so an, an interesting idea there. The third being predation. Uh, they have another example here from a study in 1990 where staghorn coral uh, failed to recover following the damage from Hurricane Allen in Jamaica. Um, and this has been interpreted as an example of multiple stable states mediated by predation. 
the species was a competitive dom- was competitive dominant by virtue of its rapid like growth rate growed really quickly and was predicted to return to the pre-storm densities within a decade. Instead, it continued to decline with substantial mortality due to predation. When staghorn became rare, its predators maintained a preference for staghorn, but survived another prey. So this was sort of an example, particularly of hysteresis, where there was a huge perturbation to the staghorn coral population that was a really quickly growing species. And so they thought it would bounce right back, to use that terminology. Um, But it had been pushed too far and the population densities had been too low. And predators just sort of (laughs) ate too much of it to even, you know, allow it to get back to pre-storm densities. Went went overboard. (laughs) Went overboard, to say the least. Yeah, so sort of an explicit example of that. Um, And then she has an example of competition and predation as another sort of category of these. Uh, One of the first explicit references to multiple stable states on reefs was Hatcher's 1984 study analysis of the apparently persistent shift from palatable to unpalatable algae on a reef dominated by a boat grounding. He argued that the sudden increase in in substratum available for colonization by algae exceeded the ability of resident herbivores to keep it well grazed. So all of a sudden there's a new place for algae to grow on, you know, in this reef ecosystem, not enough herbivores to eat this new algae. You get an increase in algae, sort of crosses a threshold of herbivore grazing, and all of a sudden, Algae everywhere. Right. Yeah. Explosion. Yeah. Consequently, unpalatable algae reached a size which made them unrecognizable to herbivores and avoided once established high densities were maintained by locally setting larvae. Kind of an interesting idea here, sort of combining multiple alternative stable states and hysteresis and these categories of classic ecological ideas. Kind of an early synthesis. Definitely sounds like, I wouldn't say early necessary, but yeah, perhaps a novel approach to it. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know enough about the papers around this time period to say whether it was a novel approach or not. Definitely. It certainly sounds like a a fairly unusual approach to to tackling this sort of a a question. Absolutely. Yeah. Foundational, one might say. (laughs) Hopefully. She also argues that Marine ecosystems and reef ecosystems and these sort of subtitle tropical ecosystems may be particularly likely to show multiple stable states and alternative stable states compared to terrestrial ecosystems because they're not subject to what she calls routine seasonal resetting from strong annual changes, basically not having a summer, spring, fall, winter in the exact same way we might think of it on land and, you know, certain temperate ecosystems maybe. So, and also due to the fact that there's such a sort of difference between the way uh, marine and terrestrial plant herbivore interactions occur. Just some thoughts there. Yeah. So she sort of contends that some of these, she contends that some of these characteristics of marine ecosystems make them more likely to exhibit multiple stable states, which makes them even better for sort of researching and understanding these uh, locations. She has some other points that she thinks makes reefs favor multiple stable states compared to other ecosystems on earth including sort of how frequently transitions occur, allele effects, the role of predator-prey interactions, stability of low prey abundance, and stability of high prey or competitor abundance. Just these sort of differences between these ecosystems and other ones. Um, She goes on to discuss the implications for this research. 
She said, as mentioned earlier, much of the debate on multiple stable states has concerned the validity of proposed examples. Although I have taken these examples at face value for the purposes of discussion, that does not mean that further empirical work is not required. There are two general aspects which need to be pursued in understanding multiple stable states in the natural world, transitions between and stability of states. What then are the best approaches, she asked. So you can really see hysteresis in this is how do these transitions occur? And then how stable are the resulting states or the original states in these transitions? So once a, you know, a tipping point has been crossed, is that new state so stable that it's going to be nearly impossible to get it to a previous state? Is that hysteretic force going to be pretty strong? Yeah. To the, she also goes into some stuff that probably not super relevant here, but I think it's interesting where she just discussed how difficult it can be to study alternative stable states in hysteresis because they occur at pretty large scale and because of some of these pretty huge perturbations, you know, and, and sort of at the scale of ecosystems sometimes and experimental manipulations can be really difficult. Uh, they can be small in scale. You know, sometimes we do experiments with sort of continuously applied uh, treatments as opposed to like these perturbation shocks that, you know, can be discussed a lot in this sort of hysteretic and alternative stable state literature. Um, she also says that it would be impractical and unethical to, um, I don't know, an example of this would be maybe dump a bunch of nutrient, you know, fertilizer on top of a coral reef and see what happens. That might not be <laughs> the most eth science, eth you know, ethically scientific study. Natural experiments are by their nature unreplicated and poorly controlled, and the mechanisms responsible for past transitions may be difficult to identify with certainty. Take into account some of that. Yeah, sure. Well, it's certainly a fair point that scale definitely factors as a major challenge. Absolutely. Scale and complexity both, really. Absolutely. Yeah, she says they, that these transitions typically require pulses of disturbance and were very large spatial scales. So absolutely what you were saying with scale. Um, I would say just in conclusion, the final part of this paper that I found really interesting was her sort of last sentence, which says, like astronomers who have more substantial problems of spatial and temporal scale, we must com creatively combine theory, natural experiments, analysis of patterns, and manipulative tests of predictions to make progress in studying this difficult but crucial issue. So got to take into account scale, got to take into account uh, heterogeneity, all that good stuff in order to sort of keep thinking about these hysteretic ideas as the decades come, which is hopefully you're going to update us a little bit on what's happened in the decade or so since this paper in the field of hysteresis. That's true. We're going to transition to a modern paper. I put modern in quotes because this particular paper is in 2003. Mm -hmm. So about 11 or so, 10 or 11 years between the two papers. Which means the papers are actually closer in time than <laughs> we are to the modern paper. Yeah, fair. But the paper that you're about to read is probably one of the most cited papers ever on hysteresis. It's a pretty good hysteresis paper, and I really like it for a couple reasons, which I'll explain in a little bit. Just to start us off, though, the paper in question is called Alternative Stable States in Ecology by Beisner et al., 2003. The paper splits between alternative stable states, which of course is in the title, mm -hmm. and hysteresis, which is pretty similar to most papers I've found that discuss hysteresis in a social ecological systems context. Certainly the one that I detail. just, yeah, and certainly the one that I just covered. I think it's pretty difficult to, to talk about hysteresis without 
these ideas. Exactly. I think that reinforces just how intertwined these two ideas are. There's plenty of people who have argued, and the, the paper even mentions that there are, there are some who argue that hysteresis and alternative stable states are necessary for each other. Mm-hmm. And certainly I would agree that theory of alternative stable states is necessary in order to understand hysteresis, mm-hmm. although I will argue later on that the reverse is not the case. Mm-hmm. But just to get us started, the first half of the paper discusses the ball and cup model and perturbations, very classic alternative stable state stuff. I'm not going to cover that much since we have an entire episode dedicated on alternative stable states, of course. So if you're interested in more, by all means, um, either check out that episode or check out the, the this paper, which we'll have obviously cited in our show notes section. But there is a couple of aspects to the first half of the paper that I really like. For one, they use the ball and cup model as almost like a 3D topographical map. So you visualize it as a, a 3D environment or a 3D landscape as opposed to something that we typically see, which is more of a 2D squiggly line or almost like a graph. The, the line mm-hmm. goes up and then goes down, and that's how we describe a ball in a cup. And I think that there are certain nuances to the 3D version that you don't get with the 2D version. I'm going to talk about those two in just a second. The second half of the paper is all about hysteresis. This is where the authors emphasize the concept. And the authors use that 3D topographical imagery to describe hysteresis, which I think is really useful for understanding the concept at a high level. Instead of that squiggly line image that we were talking about with the 2D version, that goes up and down and you have the the big hill and then threshold point and then you push the ball over and it rolls down. Visualize instead a landscape with multiple hills, valleys, and sinks or pits. With the sinks or pits being alternative stable states, that would be the cup. The hills and valleys would be environmental or social disturbances that the ball or that is the system needs to navigate. In this instance, we're taking into account more than just one potential environmental or social factor or variable. Mm-hmm. Since, of course, there's multiple factors that are involved in whether a system is in one state or another. So I really like how that helps to visualize more accurately how the system works. Now, the authors in this paper apply slightly different terminology than we've used so far. They describe those environmental or social factors that affect the stability of the system as parameters. Think of parameters as what affects the height of the threshold of the system or, or the ball that the, the ball must cross in order to fall into a new system state. As any given parameter changes, the landscape, that 3D topographical images, also changes. So the hills, the valleys, the sinks, they might become steeper. They might become shallower. Uh, the ball might escape more easily and roll where it will if it's a more level and even landscape or it might get stuck in a valley, or it might get channeled down one particular pathway. With the 2D image, we typically think of one pathway, and then Mm -hmm. there's one factor that might make that hill steeper or shallower, when instead there might be, in reality, is more accurate for there to be multiple pathways where the ball is moving down the path of least resistance. And so changes in those environmental factors are going to dictate where that ball rolls down, what that path of least resistance looks like. 
Now, a perturbation may occur that removes a hill, for example, or um, raises up a valley, and it makes it easier for the ball to roll in that particular direction and, and wind up in an alternative state. When the perturbation ends, the hill or the valley pop back into place, and now it is much more difficult to push the ball back up the hill to where it was before we had that perturbation. So in other words, what, what this means in, in a more concrete way is a perturbation or a disturbance might create an easy pathway for the system to shift into a new and potentially undesirable state. However, the disturbance could end or it could be unhelpful for pushing the system back into the old state. So as a result, then navigating back to that old state is now much more challenging and much more energy intensive. Walking our way back to that grasslands example we did earlier in the episode, we can use that as a hypothetical to explain all this. One limiting factor on tree spread is seeding. Obviously, trees like eastern red cedar need some kind of a carrier like the wind or the birds to disperse their seeds, right? So on a scale on, of the Great Plains or Nebraska, spatial distance is one of those hills. The ball will have to have a challenging time rolling up getting to that threshold and rolling over to transition from a grassland state to a forest state. Right. And you can take that even farther to include the number of seeds, which includes, which, you know, depends on the rainfall that year and how many, you know, how many, and sometimes the eastern cedar gets spread by seeds that got eaten by birds and then they fly and, you know, defecate in a new area. Maybe something terrible happened where all the birds got sick and now there's no birds that year and then they're not spreading those seeds. It, it just, you can... As you know more about a system, you can take an idea like this 3D landscape and tailor it and make it a better representation of your area and sort of predict these uh, alternative stable states and hysteretic responses, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great point. You can always better find and tailor your model to mm -hmm. what you're looking for, what information you're trying to find, right? Yeah, I think this 3D okay. model is a really nice addition compared to the 2D, which seems too simple for this concept. Yeah, I agree. The 2D model is pretty useful for introducing the concept, I think, mm -hmm. especially the concept of alternative states. But I think that the 3D model is much more useful for reflecting reality, especially the complexity of these systems and understanding that there are multiple alternative pathways where the end result might be the same, but the way that you get there is different right. depending on different environmental factors. Okay, so to explain where this you know, potential perturbation might come from, we have Space Z Corporation, which wants to terraform Mars. Okay. Uh -huh. Completely hypothetical. Space, <laughs> completely hypothetical. I, you know, just pulled Space Z Corporation from out, out of the air. There's, yeah. there's no like real world example. Well, of course not. Of course. Anyway, Space Z launches a rocket loaded with millions of eastern red cedar seeds. Oh, God. These are all for their Mars colonization project, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the rocket explodes over the Great Plains and seeds get scattered all over the place. A nightmare. <laughs> a nightmare. Now, we're setting aside these petty things like physics and seed viability and all. Mm -hmm. whatever. We're going to go ahead and say that these seeds are still still viable when they wind up on the ground. Now, this disturbance has removed a significant hill, that spatial uh, scale, whereas instead of being limited by birds and by wind to slowly spread the, the trees out, tree seeds have now been placed all over the Great Plains, all at once. 
with that significant hill removed, uh, that spatial scale as a limiting factor has vanished for a seed dispersal. Yeah. However, that hill's popped back into place when we look at spatial scale as a limiting factor for their removal. Mm. We're still removing and managing trees patch by patch through fire or mechanical or other means. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of history just to get rid of those. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could fire another rocket and explode a whole bunch of pesticide all over the Great Plains, but I feel like there would be some additional consequences. Uh, maybe. Well, to just wrap up this section, the authors bring up a really great point that I also wanted to emphasize. We've been talking a lot about hysteresis since, of course, this episode revolves around it. But the authors bring up the, the point that alternative stable states are not necessarily hysteretic, which is to say that hysteresis is not a necessary condition for alternative stable states. That ball and cup landscape may be in such a position that it's relatively easy to push that ball back into the prior state. Hysteresis is definitely a concern when we look at system management, especially something as complex as ecological systems or social systems. But that doesn't necessarily mean that hysteresis is present. It's something that we can really only judge on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Alternative stable state, yeah. Hysteresis is always combined with alternative stable states. But not all alternative stable states have hysteresis. Kind of a square rectangle issue. It uh, reminds me of a little phrase we had in like sixth grade science class. <laughs> We're talking about rocks and minerals. And there's oh, yeah. all minerals are rocks, but not all rocks are minerals. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of the same thing where hysteresis is in alternative stable states, but not all alternative stable states have hysteresis. Yeah. This is where local knowledge and and ecological studies are so important. Absolutely. Whew. Well, hysteresis. <laughs> Good stuff. I I agree that hysteresis is, you know, a really important issue and you know, we see it even in the news sometimes. So Julie, <laughs> just to start us off for our resilience in the news segment, I know you have a pretty interesting article dealing with some hysteresis in the news. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of resilience, a little bit of hysteresis, a little bit of tragedy of the commons, a little bit of uh, fun modern science that uh, is not on Earth. So my article is from <laughs> Scientific American. It's called Space Junk Removal is Not Going Smoothly, which is a lovely title. It's by Leonard David, and it was published just five days ago, April 14th, 2021. So this paper is talking about the great sort of, you know, externality of space travel and our, you know, current scientific endeavors outside of Earth's atmosphere, um, which is space junk. He says, a space age tragedy of the commons is unfolding right under our nose, or really right over our head, and no consensus yet exists on how to stop it. For more than a half century, humans have been hurling objects into low Earth orbit in ever-growing numbers, with a few meaningful limitations on further launches into that increasingly congested realm, the prevailing attitude has been persistently permissive. In orbit, it seems, there's always room for one more. Basically, we as humans, or at least some of us, have decided that space travel, satellites, maybe terraforming Mars, spacey, whatever have you, is important and we want to do it. But we haven't been going about it in a particularly resilient way, one could say. 
we're sort of moving forward with throwing things up into the air and that's great, but without plans about how we're gonna clean up the mess that we're making, the little bits of metal that are currently floating around in low earth orbit. Very haphazard approach. <laughs> very haphazard approach, not very regulated. And you can definitely see the idea of history is sort of right off the bat here. We you know, are putting all these things into low earth orbit. We've got all of this junk floating up there and we keep wanting to send rockets and satellites and all these things. Um, and at some point it's going to turn into, I'll read a bit more here, he says it very lovely, but it's gonna turn into a traffic jam where we can't get you know, rockets safely through this sort of debris field. And now we have to contend with, you know, if the, if the alternative stable states in this case are like low earth orbit filled with metal as one state and clear air, as the other state, it's gonna take more effort to get up there and pull that stuff out of the air than it would be to just sort of one by one take care of it as we send things up there. He says, after so many decades of buildup of high-speed clutter in the form of spent rocket stages, stray bolts and paint chips, <laughs> solid rocket motor slag, dead or dying satellites, and the scattered fragments from anti-satellite tests, all of which could individually damage or destroy other assets in low Earth orbit, uh, this area is finally on the verge of becoming too crowded for comfort. The problem is now poised to get much worse because of the rising of sat satellite mega constellations requiring thousands of spacecraft like SpaceX's Starlink um, and Amazon has a similar project in the works. So we keep getting bigger and better, but without any consideration of keeping this space clean. It says, as congestion has grown, so too have the close calls between orbiting assets. The International Space Station, for instance, regularly tweaks its orbit to avoid potentially hazardous debris already. And it says there's been an uptake in the threat of full-on collisions. Like in 2019, a dead Russian Cosmos satellite and a commercial Iridium spacecraft just straight up ran into each other and basically exploded and just sent this debris field out. Mm, you know, and yeah. one, can, one can contend, you know, again, this isn't really a complex system, but it would be easier to go up and get a satellite that's still in one piece than it is to get the one million pieces that it is currently broken into as a result of this collision. Right. So kind of a fun uh, idea. Yeah, Donald Kessler is a retired NASA senior scientist uh, specializing in orbital debris, which is cool. He said in the late 1970s, he foretold the possibility of a scenario that has been dubbed the Kessler syndrome. As the density of space rubbish increases, a cascading self-sustaining runaway cycle of debris generating collisions can arise that basically makes space too dangerous. And this is where it gets even more tied into ecological resilience in terms of the language of this article, which I thought was fun. There is now agreement within the community that the debris environment has reached a tipping point where debris would continue to increase even if all launches were stopped. It's that idea where, you know, right now we got a bunch of satellites up there that are maybe abandoned or whatever, but they're going to start running into one another and, you know, exploding into a million pieces. And that's basically going to make this quote unquote habitat uninhabitable. So mm. kind of cool. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Very doomsday, but very <laughs> But I find this so fascinating because there's there are quite a few resilience concepts, even in this article, they mentioned tipping points, like tragedy of the commons. There's a clear hysteretic vibe, and yet there's literally nothing living. This is like an ecosystem, but with no eco. <laughs> Just kind of a fun element. 
Oh, yeah. And then there's a great line here where, again, very environmental, very sustainable. From my perspective, the best solution to dealing with space debris is to not generate it in the first place, says T.S. Kelso, a scientist at Celestrack, an analytic group that keeps an eye on Earth-orbiting objects. Like any environmental issue, it is easier and far less expensive to prevent pollution than to clean it up later. To prevent this alternative stable state change in some ways, you know, than to go back through and have to deal with the hysteresis of pulling out all of these things. The present system's desirable, then maintenance rather than reactive cleanup is way better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so that's really all I've got here. Basically, there's a lot of trash in space and uh, it's going to be hard to clean. And I thought that the resilience language here was pretty fun. Very nice. Yeah. What have you got for us this week? Well, you've been on kind of a space theme, Julie. With this I have. Article and I really have. Then with, with Seed Vault on the moon. Mm-hmm. And so I have, for whatever reason, been on a COVID-19 track. For whatever Less- reason. <laughs> <laughs> like it's some kind of a news story or something. Yeah. Like it's affecting everybody. Hmm. Well, this week's article, like last week's article, is also about the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was just too perfect of an article for this episode not to use. I almost it's used from... this same article. <laughs> Did you? Nice. Yeah, because yeah, I've never seen the word hysteresis in the title of a news article before. I haven't either. That's why I felt like I had to uh, yeah. bring it up. Not to mention this is from Forbes, which I feel is like a fairly reputable news source. So it's a a, a mainstream news source. Yeah. Seeing the word hysteresis in a a non-academic or scientific Mm -hmm. context was pretty interesting. So this article was by Professor Julian Birkinshaw at the London Business School. And he discusses the vaccine rollout, getting back, the concept of getting back to normal and We've heard a lot of discussion of what does getting back to normal look like. Professor Birkenshaw here uses the concept of hysteresis to explain why normal isn't going to look exactly like what it did pre-pandemic. He goes on to talk about how there are two camps on this question. There are people who think this is a permanent change and we're never going back to the way things were. And then there's people who see... Uh, the pandemic as a, a temporary shock, a blip, and people will basically revert back to where they were beforehand. So is this the, the bounce back situation or has the system shifted to an alternative state? Mm-hmm. He generally argues that we, we will return back to where we were with some changes. So we have some caveats. Fundamentally, the system is hysteretic in the context of we have this new disease out there, which has resulted in changes to, for example, how we work digitally and communicate and and all of these other things. And he points to other situations we've seen in the past. For example, uh, the 9-11 attacks. We saw people flying several months after the 9-11 attacks occurred, Mm -hmm. but there were stricter security measures in place. And thinking about it, 20 years later, we're, we're still taking our shoes off in the airport, right? Right. So there are definitely aspects fundamentally changed since then, even though the main activity, which is flying, remains. And he hypothesizes this is largely going to be the same. He also talks about the fundamental notions behind hysteresis, and even briefly talks about uh, physics and and economists and where hysteresis originally came from. He used the magnetic, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
using a magnetic field, applying it to a piece of iron, but then the piece of iron is largely still, well, not largely, it's still partially magnetized. So the system doesn't just switch from on and off state, right? It's non-binary. There's still that remnant of the previous state. But I was fascinated by this description of hysteresis in a, a non-academic context and using it to describe a ongoing situation like what we see with the COVID-19 pandemic and how hysteresis can be used to describe and predict what we're going to see going forward once the pandemic is over. And whether that's changes to consumer behavior or to the way businesses communicate with each other and with their customers or just how families interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. I thought it was a very interesting and useful application of the concept to something that is obviously affecting everybody. Yeah, and I think it's almost comforting in a way because I think we, we sometimes we do get these very binary ideas in our head, right? Like everything's either going to go right back to the way it was before, you know, we're not, you know, per great parts and the terrible parts, or we're going to be stuck in this pandemic state forever and everything's going to be terrible and, and scary. I think it is comforting to be like, no, there's a third option, which is, we are gonna move forward, take a lot of the great things that we had before, go back to doing those things, but maybe maybe change a few things. Maybe we'll wear masks on airplanes more often. Maybe we'll just generally be a little safer about these. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's comforting to have that third option that we as humans with this all or nothing mindset love to forget. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I like it. I'm impressed that hysteresis made it to Forbes. I was very impressed as well. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Julie, interesting stuff. Hysteresis, yeah. alternative stable states. Yeah, a little bit of a Good recap times. and some new some new materials. So thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. And uh, please join us for our next episode. Check out the CRE website and you know other materials in our show notes. Hit subscribe. Give us a like. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks all. Take care. Bye.